And my sincere thanks also to, um, to Peter MacDonald and the Trust for the invitation to give the annual lecture this evening and to the English faculty here and the Bodley which have helped make this uh, trip possible. I take it as a great honour. Um, I first met Don in person in Melbourne in 1992 but I was of course already familiar with his work. His voice when I came across it in the 1980s and struggling as I was to understand the editorial work that I'd recently become engaged in was a revelation. So I want to start my lecture with an epigraph which shows us Don at his eloquent best, at once teasingly paradoxical, beguilingly persuasive and profoundly right. He wrote, no book was ever bound by its covers. The book in all its forms enters history only as evidence of human behaviour and it remains active only in the service of human needs. It's one of those sentences that you wish you'd had the wit to write yourself, except of course when he wrote it in 1983 in a paper he gave to the Bibliographical Society, no one else but he could have. I'm going to return to this insight in the course of this evening's lecture in a case study, partly to tease out the wisdom of the remark its tolerant unrolling of the bibliographical into the wider cultural and social realms, its implication that the material book can be treated as an index of them. Don gave a name to this, uh, to this approach in the title of his 1985 Panizzi lectures, Bibliography and the Sociology of Texts. Now, in 2011, I feel that I need to sound a counterbalancing note that wasn't necessary to mention in the 1980s when Don was speaking. I'm referring to that other focus of literary and cultural interpretation, as well as a bibliographical organisation, the work. It is the silent partner, or rather in recent decades has become the silenced partner that needs to go along with Don's innovative expansion of the term, the book. The concept of the work, I want to argue, needs to be rebirthed. Now Foucault uh, promised one day to get around to unpacking the concept of the work just as he had done for authorship. He presumably envisaged that the work concept would be heading into the same exile and desuetude as what he called the author function. As far as I know, he never got around to that analysis, but by some time around the late 1980s, there was little point anyway. We Anglophones had by and large stopped using the term work because it had been overtaken by the now more attractive one, text. Suddenly everything was a text. Bibliographers, especially textual critics and editors, had however always carefully distinguished between the two terms. So when Catherine Sutherland wrote in 1996 of quote, that manifestly relegated concept, the work, she was, rather shockingly I realised, right. Shocking, not because of what she said, it was a true report, but because a bibliographer had said it. Not a literary theorist, that would have been par for the course. In the circumstances, it hit me like a bullet. Bear in mind, I say this in a literary context, I write out of a career in a university English department. I want to be able to envisage a future for literary studies. To do that, I believe we need a new model. I don't mean an exclusive model, and I don't mean a prescriptive model, but I do mean a model. Before I can get to the point of defining one, or of trying to define one this evening, I have two preambles. The first is editorial and a little, and I hope forgivably, 
autobiographical. The second is theoretical. And then I'll offer a case study of the 1890s Australian short story writer, Henry Lawson. The case study is an illustrative justification for my proposal, one which draws together book history and bibliography into a model of a broader form of literary study. So it's about 50 minutes worth. And so all I can say is settle in for the ride. First preamble, editorial. In 1990, I gave a paper later published as Reading, Criti Reading Critical Editions with the Grain and Against the Cambridge D.H. Lawrence. The essay was about the Lawrence Works series. The essay, um, and in that series, I'd been involved for, I suppose, seven or eight years by that stage. I was finishing my second edition for Cambridge, Twilight in Italy and Other Essays, Lawrence's remarkable travel book of 1916. You might be able to guess from the title of that paper, reading critical editions with the grain and against, that I was trying to open up the discussion about what editions do and what they could do. By then I'd been involved in the 1980s editorial theory movement for a few years and was developing uh, a critique of those notions of text, the work, and authenticity that editors traditionally buy into when they establish reading texts. And the German tradition of historical critical editing was, for me, looming in a fascinating way, partly because of my managing to get Hans Walter Gabler to the Editing in Australia conference in 1989, and because of the brouhaha over his edition of Joyce's Ulysses uh, that was erupting in the New York Review of Books even as he was in Australia. I would very soon be hearing papers about the French critique genetique school at the biennial meetings of the Society for Textual Scholarship in New York. The apparent settled inevitabilities of the procedures of the Lawrence edition had come to seem to me to be rather less settled. They still made sense, but clearly there were alternatives. The post-structuralist movement was in full swing, but I was uneasy with it for its gliding over the practical problems that, like every other editor, I was dealing with on a daily basis. Problems of unclear and altered inscriptions on documents, of missing documents, of textual transmission, uh, and of the various agents of textual production, authors, typesetters. Inflated romantic claims about authorships, about authorship were, I had come to see, quite dispensable. And to the extent that editions were built upon such claims, they were probably building upon an illusion that they had, in, that they had inherited most immediately from the new criticism of the 1960s and before. Literary works were taken to inhabit an aesthetic realm and to have at least a semi-objective status. This gave literary critics an impatience with editorial talk of their being witnessed in documents, handwritten, typed and printed. Although they were published in certain years and by, by such and such an author, they were treated as transhistorical. The study of them was not especially historical or biographical, and certainly not, a dirty word in those days, sociological. Levisite critics were enjoyed, enjoined to trust the tale, not the teller's declarations about the meanings, and new critics saw their job as elucidating the finished verbal form of works. None of this required much delving into the textual entrails of works. None of it required uh, very fine chronological discrimination between the versions of works. It was a mountain peaks school of criticism. I realised this about a year after I began my PhD in 1976. It was mainly on Twilight in Italy. 
hardly anyone knew how the early versions of the essays of Lawrence's travel book related as regards their time of writing and even their time of publication with the early versions of other of his essays and short stories and poems of the same period. And even fewer critics cared. It was the coming of the editions that changed all that, but not until my PhD was well and truly finished. Editions, you see, introduce, well, obviously, a new scholarly infrastructure. At the very least, they force critics to quote from them. They make ignorance of the basic chronologies of production and of the associated correspondence of the author less and less excusable. But what new awareness do editions force from the editors who produce them? Well, I was getting a good sense of it in the early 1990s. I came to the conclusion that what I was most intently doing as I went about my editorial work was keeping in the forefront of my mind the two basic text production vectors of agency and chronology. Further, I had come to believe that intention as regards the wording of a text was by no means an objective thing that you discovered, rather you attributed intention that act of attribution exposed your own active role in the transaction. There was no pre-existing and self-evident truth to which you could appeal, but there was such a thing as documentary evidence that you know, prompted and, and guided you. For instance, what to do when the typist had mistyped and the author, checking the typescript but without the manuscript available, made the error good by providing a plausible reading, but in such a way that the original reading, with its own subtlety perhaps, was lost. After all, it was the later reading. A contrasting situation, however, occurred when the author both noticed the error and proceeded to rewrite the whole sentence or paragraph and to make corresponding changes elsewhere. This, in comparison, seemed to be a controlled reauthorizing through creative intervention. Overruling the first case of the author's half-engaged response to transmissional error, but accepting the second brought a self-consciousness to your own interventions as editor. The distinction nevertheless made sense to me. It was defensible, but you were producing, in effect, a reading text that had never previously existed in this form, in precisely this form. This text of final authorial intention, as it's called, was indeed a kind of privileged wormhole through the whole documentary embroglio of the work, a route through the evidence intended to respect the agency of the author. As editor, you interpreted that agent's intentions and you privileged the results. You shouldered aside the other actors on the original textual stage by unpicking their work. You identified in order to reject the errors or unauthorised changes of the amanuensis, the typist, the typesetter and perhaps the publisher's editor. But you could scarcely claim the text was definitive. By the late 1980s that term was slipping into the past, amongst editors at least. Although interestingly not reviewers of editions. For editors, texts were neither stable, objective things nor discursively free-floating things. They had anchorage in agency and those agented acts of inscription were witnessed by and in documents, whether extant or lost. The scholarly editor was simply the latest agent. The edition embodied 
embodied in its reading text and apparatus a continuous argument about the textual conditions of the work. The addition thus created propelled the work, newly equipped, into a changed life in its future dealings with readers. While the desire amongst readers for, for an authorial text remained in the ascendant, the argument would have cogency and force. Remove that commitment though, and the Cambridge University Press Lawrence series and many others like it would be in trouble. In the period of high literary theory, that commitment was of course wavering, although in fact it did not and has not disappeared. But would it be possible to establish a reading text of final authorial intention if it turned out that the author had authorised competing ones? What we had begun, now I don't expect you to be able to read this, I, what, I'm, what your eye might be looking for is just slight differences, You'll, I'll explain. Um, would it be possible to establish a reading text of final authorial intention if it turned out that the author had authorised competing ones? What we had begun as editors rather dismayingly dis to discover was that works of the modernist period typically consist of multiple texts. Unlike Shakespearean editors, we were often flush with textual resources. We often had a manuscript, revised typescripts, not just one, but two, as in this slide, differently revised, and intended to enable simultaneous publication in New York and London. This was a requirement of the change copyright regime from the 1890s. You were looking at the ribbon and carbon copies of the same page of Lawrence's The Boy in the Bush, which I edited first for Cambridge. He had gone back and forth between the two as he prepared the copy for the two first editions. Um, and then, of course, there might be serialisation too, dual serialisation as well as dual first editions in the case of Conrad's Under Western Eyes, which I'm working on at the moment. The problem of documentary supply virtually guaranteed we would be seeing variant versions all of them authorised. We are still working through the implications of this. But what is clear is that the bibliographical, what is clear is that the bibliographical, so I should say this is the, the very end of Under Western Eyes in the two um, serials. Uh, if you just look in the last line, you'll see something interesting, and, but there's, there's a fair bit there actually if you've if you're got extremely good eyesight. Uh, what is clear though is that the bibliographically grounded insight about textual variation was begging book historical and literary critical questions. It, it was a two-way street, I realised. Now, second preamble, theoretical. I have to back up in time now before coming forward again. I want us to watch Foucault pulling the rug out from under traditional assumptions and modes, uh, 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 from under traditional assumptions and modes of literary research. I'm about to quote from his book, uh, The Archaeology of Knowledge of 1969, 1972 in English and reprinted another 12 times in English by 1997. Given what he calls, quote, the density of discursive practices at any one time, he argues, and now I'm quoting, if there are things said and only that, one should seek the immediate reason for them in the things that were said not in them, nor in the men, men that said them, but in the system of discursivity, in the enunciative possibilities and impossibilities that it lays down. The archive is first the law of what can be said, the system of what governs the appearance of statements as unique events. 
So you see, Foucault was wanting extraordinarily to define and centralise the archive of discourses, not of documents. He was wanting to validate the study of the set of relationships exterior to any and all enunciations of meaning at any one time when, as he puts it, there are things said and only those. Analysis of texts and documents would necessarily henceforth occur in the passive voice since agency was implicitly now transferred to the system. Texts were, under this generalising purview, reduced to, instan to instances of the same discursive event or thing. In practical terms, the material records of moments of writing and of reading get swallowed up into a far larger scale form of cultural and political critique. In the 1970s and 80s, this was intoxicating stuff. Foucault helped open up the way for what proved to be an avalanche of post-colonialist thinking about the archive. Newly armed literary critics traced out the various forms, psychic complicities and hybridising reactions that the discourse of Orientalism, to take one important example, took or fostered. Enunciating and thereby decloaking the discursive system, tracing the ramifications of its power, was the point of the enterprise. Travel writings, novels, official documentation, cartography, um, the expansion or establishment of museums, first in Europe and then in the colonies, all these proved grist to the mill. Courtesy of Derrida's essay of 1995, Archive Fever, the generalising of the term archive to align with memory and its repressions gave another lease of life to such thinking, but at the cost of dematerialising the material archive. This realisation made me go back to the source in Foucault in preparing to write this lecture. The trajectory of understanding was, after Foucault, away from the document to the text to the discourse, to the conditions of possibility of the underlying discursive system. Under this dispensation, there would be casualties. As Foucault had put it, with some courtesy in the statement, in, in, in his um, uh, chapter, The Statement and the Archive, to posit the existence of discursive formations, we have, he said, to put to one side, not in a definitive way, but for a time and out of methodological rigour the traditional unities of the book and the oeuvre. A series of agreements, Foucault quite reasonably points out, goes along with this. It means that in doing so, we have ceased to accept as a principle of unity the laws governing discourse with the formal, organ the formal organisation that results, or the situation of the speaking subject with the context and the psychological nucleus that characterise it, that we no longer relate discourse to the primary ground of experience, <clears throat> nor to the a priori authority of knowledge, but that we seek the rules of its formation in discourse itself. Now, this was quite a lot to put to one side, even for the purposes of an intellectual experiment, and despite the new flexibilities for cultural analysis that it ushered in. So inevitably, over the years, a frustration has built up what David Carter has recently described as, quote, a certain weariness with the subversive paradigm and the routines of contemporary critique, the feeling, he says, that they had lost their capacity to generate new knowledge. Gradually, for the last 15 years or so, we've watched a series of empirical forms of evidence being brought to the literary table once again. 
book historical analysis of publishers' archives, the borrowing records of libraries and the activities of reading groups, and, uh, and interestingly in Australia, statistical analysis of trends revealed by big literary databases, stylometric study of authorship, and the new evidence of multiple texts of works coming out of large editorial projects. The latter, in particular, brought to bear on books in the library and documents in the material archive the fundamental questions of human agency and time. For the editor, it meant reconstructing what the human agent understood him or herself to be doing in carrying out the textual action that left the documentary record. This was not to take the actor's word for it, but it was a desystematizing and a rehumanizing move. In characterising the empirical inquiry in this way, I'm departing from the overview of recent trends offered by David Carter in the essay I mentioned before. Carter sees instead a danger in relinquishing the general analysis of the literary field that the post-structuralist disposition had encouraged. In some ways, following Peter MacDonald's implementation of Bourdieu's model of the field to study British literary culture of 1880 to 1914, Carter advocates the need to plot and triangulate in terms of networks, institutions and structures. It's they, he believes, that will give meaning to the particularist studies typical of the first phase of post-1990 Anglophone book history. Studies of, as he puts it, the lifespans of particular texts and editions, localised bookselling practices, the structures of particular publishing houses or print, mar or print markets and so on, he says. Now, so Carter doesn't, interestingly, he doesn't criticise these focused projects per se, but his description of them as disaggregated detail, as bits of the machine, rather than the machine itself, <clears throat> indicates that he sees them as by themselves, leaving us short-changed on what we need to understand the field of literary culture as a whole. Well, what should we make of this dichotomy of overarching structural coherence of book historical explanation on the one hand, and the fragmentation of what he calls particularist case study on the other. Carter sees two-way traffic between the two levels and by this sensible move mitigates the danger of erecting or validating grand narratives. Nevertheless, the problem as I see it with this dichotomy is that, is that it leaves the literary per se exactly where it was, that is, unattended to. It offers no way of conceptually re-engaging the category of the aesthetic. If that re-engagement is what, is what we need to do, and Carter says literary appreciation is something we still want to teach in one way or another, then his dichotomy is the wrong model, although it might be right for cultural history. I believe there's another available one for literary study, a perhaps more democratic one to which I'll return. For now, all I want to say is that I do like the way Carter clarifies our present dilemma with book history and the idea of literature. He does it by asking a series of pertinent questions, quoting now, is the object of our research still literature or is it books, publishing or print culture? Is what we're doing still literary history or is it book history, the history of reading or something else again, the history of cultures or subjectivities? Are we still talking about literary studies or is the literary simply dispersed into all other studies?" Unquote. What are we to make, or what are we to make of the fact that the current study of book history is methodologically, as he puts it, agnostic towards literature? 
The new Anglophone book history movement of the early 1990s when the Book History Society Sharp was set up became, as Leah Price has put it, a sort of bolt hole in which the untheoretically minded literary scholars might wait theory out. Because it was formed partly in reaction to the dominance of high theory and therefore partly under its intellectual shadow, there was a felt need to reject the blandishments of old-style belletrism, of publishing as the handmaiden to literature, to reject the assumption that literary works were inherently more significant or, worth, uh, or worthy of study than others, and to insist that authorship could and should be studied either as a prestige or money-making profession or as a legal phenomenon tied up with the history of copyright. There was no way of resurrecting authorship as a form of high creative endeavour. There was no way of revalidating study of the work considered as an aesthetic thing. The new catch cry was the material book. It would be the focus around which research questions from various perspectives could be oriented. This was not the old Marxist emphasis on the material means of production. It was new or rather renewed since it replayed or recast the old pursuit of historical bibliography. That is historical as opposed to physical, but with studies of readership added. At length, it worked its way through literature departments and the meetings of professional literary associations. A special issue of PMLA in 2006 devoted to the emerging movement was a sign. By, by the 2010 conference, this is a, an anecdote, but I think it's telling, of the Association for the Study of Australian Literature, I noticed that papers with a book historical or other empirical focus were constituting about a third of the papers offered in the multiple parallel sessions. This was the first time it had reached such a proportion. In the early 1990s, in great contrast, there were hardly any. And in 2007, when I'd previously given a paper, um, only a small handful. Now, fashion, of course, does not equate to truth. Fashion does not equate to truth, that is for sure. But it does leave us with a problem of disciplinary definition. The post-war essentialist commitment to literature as a privileged field of study and therefore institutionally as a turf that needed to be protected, is precisely, as Peter MacDonald argued in 2006 in that PMLA special issue, what Sartre, then Blanchot, then Barthes, Foucault and Derrida in their various ways overturned. Nevertheless, as MacDonald points out in his survey of the French tradition, enchantment with the idea of the literary was one of its early expressions. It's definitely there in Blanchot, his account, distantly echoing Heidegger's as it does, of the fragile space occupied by the work that comes into being in the reader, was and remains potentially renewing for the definition of literary study. Though partly attracted to Blanchot's view, Derrida finally did less to continue that line of thought about enchantment as to undermine it, since for him it had established another law, another grand narrative that enshrined cultural power around the idea of literature. It was all too readily deconstructible. The materialist emphasis of book history, Peter argues, is not as unproblematically post-theory as it proclaims itself to be it has continuities with the unenchanted French tradition. I would phrase it myself this way. Book history as currently practice, practiced is about books and other documents, not about works. The recent turn away from the post-structuralist discursive forms of explanation to book historical ones has only continued the repression of the aesthetic dimension or quality, the literariness of literary works. 
reifying the divide between, the liter between literary and historical explanation leaves us with an ongoing problem. Where is the model that will embrace the literary? Not as an institutional or marketplace or publishing phenomenon, but as an inherent quality of texts. How might literary study be founded so as to regather the pre-Foucauldian commitment but without embracing the old and still untenable ideological baggage. Now, please note in saying this that I'm not an anti-theorist. If the present is indeed a post-capital T theory uh, moment, as various people have announced during the last decade, this can only be an anthropological observation about the passing of a certain ideological commitment in humanities departments. Because I reply, how can, how can we avoid theorising? the moment we begin to reflect on our practice, uh, we are engaged in theory. Um, that will always be so. Um, what I want to learn myself better how to do is to theorise through practice. That is what the editorial theory movement of the 1980s and 90s was, in fits and starts, trying to do, and partly inspired by Don Mackenzie. While retaining a basic empirical commitment, that movement absorbed challenged and expanded the assumptions and working methods of traditional bibliography. That's why I still find its cluster of ways of thinking about texts helpful and occasionally inspiring. Therefore, where I want to go next in my own thinking and what I suspect is more generally needed is to learn how to configure a conjunction of bibliography and book history. It will happen, I think, through practice. And so here's an example. This is now my case study. Case study, Henry Lawson's While the Billy Boils. It comes from a book I'm writing on the life, and life in inverted commas, of While the Billy Boils, a collection of sketches and short stories by Henry Lawson, first published in 1896 in Sydney. It has been in print more or less continuously ever since in many editions and very many formats and selections. So much so that when decimal currency was introduced in Australia in 1966, so central to the Australian imaginary had Lawson become as poet and short fiction writer that his portrait appeared on the new $10 note that replaced the old £5 note. You'll be happy to learn that it was not the Queen's image that he replaced, <laughs> but rather that of Sir John Franklin, the early governor of Tasmania and Arctic explorer. There Lawson remained in circulation on that note until uh, 1993, gives a new meaning to literary reception, <laughs> by which time, by 1993, by which time the nationalist myth in Australia of the 1890s bush legend that he had come to symbolise had been largely unpicked, first by feminist critique in the 1970s and 80s, and then the effects of a growing commitment to multiculturalism in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and finally by the stylistic glamour of a new internationalising postmodernism. But for some decades there, Lawson was on a roll. The man himself had died in poverty in 1922, a sad figure, at, at his worst a cadging drunk, well known around the streets and bookshops of Sydney but he had had 10 fine and innovative years of creative work from 1892, writing and selling his, his stories and sketches and ballads one by one into the miscellaneous company they would share in the pages of the trade unionist weekly, The Worker, and the famously vigorous and illustrated Sydney Bulletin. 
his, his rise into local prominence coincided with the beginnings of royalty paying or profit sharing literary publishing in Australia. It became professional in the mid 1890s in Sydney for the first time. The foremost firm, Angus and Robertson, commenced their literary list with Banjo Patterson's The Man from Snowy River, you seen the film? And other verses in 1895. Lawson's While the Billy Boyles followed in 1896. So this pattern of initial newspaper publication followed by collection into volume form continued for the rest of Lawson's life. When the Melbourne-based politician, ardent proponent of colonial federation and future Prime Minister of Australia, Alfred Deakin, read While the Billy Boils in November 1896, he was enthusiastic. Uh, he left a note, he paints the sombre side of bush life with unsurpassing fidelity. His sketches are absolutely living in their burning reality. Lawson was writing about living conditions in the bush, in the outback, and in the cities during the 1890s depression, of which he had all too personal an experience. If you've come across Lawson's prose at all, it will most likely have been via the widely anthologised story, The Drover's Wife. There is subdued emotion in this account of a mother's outback life of quiet desperation. Lawson was um, a quiet desperation. Frank Marnie's inkwash uh, illustration, commissioned for the first edition of 1896 and expensively produced for those days in photogravure, is a sensitive response. The husband has gone a droving, he's, he's not been home for six months, and the woman's fearless little son has just now helped her kill a deadly snake. They saw it slither under the floorboards of the house. It's come through a crack in the slab wall of the outside lean-to kitchen where the mother and her children have gone to spend the night. At the very end of the story, Lawson allows the woman only a brief moment of emotion. Marnie, the illustrator, seized on it. Elsewhere, the emphasis uh, in, in Lawson's prose falls squarely on the woman's stoicism in her motherly plight. At least the angularity of her almost skeletal face seems right. This woman has been emotionally squeezed and pinched by the tough conditions of life in the bush. Although many of Lawson's sketches incorporate the humour of male camaraderie on the outback track, as the swagman trudged from sheep station to sheep station in search of work, his rejection of a more stylized and sentimental form of prose writing was an offence to many reviewers, even as they registered what a radically new talent he was. It was an existing tide of expectation about the literary that Lawson was having to push back as he experimented with various narrators and their mode of address to the anticipated readership. Joseph Conrad, in fact, saw the technical achievement, Lawson's techni technical achievement, straight away when he, in first, when he first encountered some of his stories in 1901. Conrad said, Lawson's sketches are beyond praise, the more so that in such a subject it takes a first-rate man not to break through the thin ice of sentimentalism. The stories that Conrad encountered had begun to appear in Blackwood's magazine after Lawson came to London in 1899 to try to make his literary fortune in its broader marketplace. James B. Pinker, the literary agent, got on the job for Lawson. Two collections appeared from Blackwood's and another from Methuen. And the publisher's readers, E.V. Lucas and Edward Garnett, energetically took up the public case for Lawson in the Academy and Literature. 
Very unfortunately, family tragedy put pay to Lawson's effort to make good in Britain. He returned to Australia in 1902, and that effectively marked the end of his period of high creative achievement. Now, book historians here this evening will appreciate how rapidly I've just skated over a number of key issues about the material and commercial aspects of authorship, book production and reception. Bibliographers will have noticed one further elision whose results I haven't time to present this evening, that is my archival and bibliographical inquiry into the formats of the collection's many impressions and issues, especially in the first few years and then down the decades, without which the full story of the collection's production history cannot be revealed. All of these considerations necessarily complicate the editorial problem, which I'm also trying to sort out at the moment, of how best, how most usefully to present the contents, the contents of this collection. In what sequence? Chronological, by first publication in the newspapers, uh, the manuscripts I should say are lost, or according to the sequence of the published collection as determined, I have proven, by the publisher. And in what texts? Is it Lawson's wordings that we're interested in? If so, his original wor wordings in the newspapers or his revised in the published collection. Or the wording that resulted from his collaborative dealings with his copy editor in 1896, of which we have the full documentary evidence, as you can guess from, this, uh, sl uh, from these slides of printer's copy. Here's another one. or the texts and illustrations that his successive readerships encountered. Different matter. I wish I had time to go into that range of issues this evening, but the best I can do is to flash through these images and I'm afraid leave you wondering. If I'm to address the other issues I've promised to address, I need to move, I need to move on. Lawson would have been grimly amused by the fact that he was granted a state funeral when he died in 1922. This cheap illustrated subdivision of the collection into, in fact, three series, three slender volumes, uh, a subdivision of that original 1896, uh, while the Billy Boyle's collection uh, came out very soon after his death, um, and of course making, um, making hay while the sun shone. Um, Lawson would have been astonished to learn that his reputation as the dour singer of hardship and mateship would soon be taken up enthusiastically in the slowly growing nationalist sentiment of the 1920s and 1930s in Australia. Soon after 1922, the, the school children of New South Wales, mobilised in fact by the Teachers Federation, were contributing their pennies weekly towards the cost of a bronze statue of Lawson the Bushman that would finally be erected in 1931 in the domain near the Botanic Gardens in Sydney, where the impoverished Lawson of earlier days had sometimes slept rough. The active support of the trades union movement was important in promoting Lawson's reputation, whose early poetry had in fact been revolutionary in sentiment. I won't take you through the series of public events that kept Lawson's name before the public in the 20s and 30s, the graveside eulogies, the lectures, the essays and booklets that were published about him. But bit by bit, support grew. And then there was the war, the Second World War, which stimulated the nationalist sentiment, just as popular and justified wars normally do. This in turn led to a more deep-seated acknowledgement, which in some quarters bordered on reverence, of crucial masculine and warrior qualities. During the 1950s, in books by commentators and historians, a bush myth 
capital B Bush myth of the, of the supposedly nationalist 1890s in Australia took firm root, with Lawson as one of the main focuses of attention. In fact, as I've discovered by gathering evidence of reading habits, habits and publishing trends in the 1890s, the new myth of the 1950s, though ostensibly about the 1890s, captured the spirit of the 1950s far more accurately and fundamentally. During the period since his death in 1922, Angus and Robertson, the publisher, had been, as you've been seeing in these slides, busily stoking and supplying the market with new typesettings and formats of Wilder Billy Boyles and his other collections including some imposing hardback omnibus compilations of the collections from 1935 onwards. By the time university-based literary critics in Australia began to write about Australian literature in the 1950s and 60s, it was in the period of new criticism and of its more morally strenuous leverside form. These professional critics had first to wrest ownership of the Lawson legend from the trades unionist and communist left. They did this largely by discounting the value of Lawson's politically radical early verse and erasing that of his prose. They paid little attention to the biographical embeddedness of each of his stories, instead ranging across the hardback compilations at will, treating each story as an isolated aesthetic object in need of exegesis and evaluation. They found that Lawson was talking directly to their own present, to the existentialist anxieties of the 1950s and 60s. He had, after all, been dealing with a life stripped to its bare essentials in his stories, a life on the track, stoically pursued and of poverty in the city. Lawson's narrators do not protest. They remain steady in their address to their subjects while registering the human cost. There was an appetite in the post-World War II period for new sources of value, and the appetite came down to my generation of undergraduates in the early 70s. The literary critics, some of them, felt the weight of civilization on their shoulders. In an indiscreet moment in 1967, one critic, Stephen Murray Smith, praised, quote, the, the compassion and universality of vision that you find in those rare people who have been touched, one might say, by the finger of God. In nearly 200 years, we, that is Australians, have been lucky to find one such man among the 20 million or so who live or have lived on our shores. We shall be lucky to find another. But at least we have Lawson. <laughs> and if Australians were divested of all other sources of spiritual judgment and values, we could do far worse than draw on him. This was no moment to be insisting on biographical positionings and bibliographical minutiae. And yet, here and there in the, in the international literary field, there were stirrings of these interests. Despite new critical emphasis on the finished form of the aesthetic work as the proper object of attention, books that studied the genesis or different versions of important literary works were appearing. Do you remember your first experience of having to start juggling with the 1805 and 1850 versions of Wordsworth's Prelude? Should, um, should we be treating the younger and older Wordsworth as two different authors, though sharing the same name, I remember wondering. Um, and what about the different texts of the early Henry James and the late Henry James of the New York edition of his novels? And don't forget the groundswell of debate from the early 70s that finally led to the two versions of King Lear in the Oxford Shakespeare in 1986. A shocking moment for some traditional critics, but a shock that had been prefigured more radically by Gabler's synoptic and critical edition of James Joyce's Ulysses in 1984. 
By the early 1980s in Australia, a Lawson critic, Brian Kiernan, who had originally taken Lawson to his breast with new critical and leverside zeal, had relaxed. He was now having to edit selections of Lawson's prose, including his newspaper journalism, letters and, and manifestos, as well as some of his verse. The interconnectedness of everything Lawson wrote dawned on him. He realised that the chances of illuminating Lawson's whole oeuvre rested on being able to establish the chronology of his writings. Kiernan was beginning to see how to shake off the intimidating effects of trusting volume publication date alone and restricting oneself to study of the recognised literary genres. Now, everything Lawson wrote was grist to the critical mill. As um, the, uh, foreground and background came simultaneously into view. There was, as it were, an authorial intertextuality to be described and understood. At the same time, there were new stirrings in the literary criticism of Lawson. Harry Heseltine was Australia's first uh, trained new critic. Uh, rather than go to Oxford or Cambridge, the usual route for Australians in those days, he took his PhD in the early 1950s at Baton Rouge, where the influence of Cleanth Brooks and Robert Penn Warren was still, uh, was still heavy. Later, back in Australia, Heseltine wrote on Lawson in 1960. He commented on one short story sketch that, by 1982, when he was again writing on Lawson, was known to have another ending that radically changed its meaning. Both endings were authorial. Heseltine, as a new critic, commented that this situation must provoke questions about Lawson's intentions in writing the story, about the validity of a commentary so completely based on a doubtful text. Whatever, Lawrence's, uh, sorry, whatever, whatever Lawson's conscious intentions, his imagination was demonstrably capable of entertaining at least two possible interpretations of the same events. The question of primary interest concerns the nature of the discrepancy and the reasons for its appearance. Now this, as I say, was 1982. It was an interesting moment in Australian literary critical history. What we had was an honest registration of a problem with a new critical methodology that had hitherto served professional critics like Heseltine well. The thing that was thought to be stable, to be the object of the literary critic's attention, had turned out to be unstable after all. If it was unstable, did it justify the ordinary procedures of the critic's methodology? The close reading for sound and image and tone, the tracing of motifs, etc. In other words, a newly introduced source of relevant information was calling for a renovation in the practice. The problem was that this was the very moment when the post-structuralist theory movement swept across the Australian literary terrain, making questions the question of adjustment and renovation or change of focus irrelevant. The opportunity was there in the early 1980s. More scholarship was coming, but the timing was unlucky. In conclusion then, although I have to confess it's rather a long conclusion. In conclusion then, Anglophone book history has over the last 20 years or so signalled its liberation. Sensitised to newer so-called material conceptions of production and reception, interest in a wider range of players and motivations in the book scene has been licensed. In this bold advance, some book historians have flexed the muscles of their new freedom by deliberately refusing to grant any methodological pre uh, precedence to classic literary works on the lists of the publisher being studied. A kind of book democracy has been declared. The move does not clarify what is or ought to be the subject of literary study, however. It leaves exactly where it was the problem of whether we are talking about books or about works. And indeed, many book historians shuttle between the two terms as if there was no difference between them. 
Literary scholars who tend to think of the concept of the work as, as sort of embarrassingly old-fashioned are especially liable to, to slip and slide over the, over the distinction. I think I can just close that now. Yeah, there we go. Um, Laurel Brake's book, Print in Transition, published in 2001, takes this dethroning of the literary as traditionally conceived in a book-based format one crucial step further. She's dealing with a period 1850 to 1901. Her emphasis is on, is on the new importance of serialisation as a publishing phenomenon, which she defines to include serialisation of fiction and the publication form itself of periodicals and of encyclopedias and other reference books issued in parts. She says, in a framework of material culture, I want to treat the rappers and, and advertisers that, with the letterpress and illustration, make up part issues and periodicals as part of what we designate the text to be studied. In this perspective, the discourses of higher journalism, such as history, literature and science, are situated far closer to other commodities in the marketplace than in the reductive and apparently normative high cultural volume forms in which they principally reach us. So as an example, what does she mean? Brake notes the odd juxtaposition of an advertisement for the Scottish Widows Fund on the back wrapper, recto, opposite the last page of Daniel Deronda, 1876, where George Eliot describes, describes Gwendolyn, quote, crushed on the floor. Such grief seemed natural in a poor lady whose husband had been drowned in her presence. Brake comments, this chance parallel uh, between the letterpress and the advertisements underlines the, the consanguinity of the discourses of commerce and culture, the heteroglossia of these hybrid texts which serially produce regular pervasive dialogue, unquote. Brake refers to her, kind, to her kind of inquiry as horizontal book history and she makes a strong case for it. It collapses the boundaries between book and periodical and can embrace periodicals as whole titles, as texts worthy of study in themselves, enjoying a semi-collective authorship and participating, as she says, in discourses of a 19th century cultural formation. This approach, she argues, dissolves the, quote, hypotheses of vertical studies of single titles, editors and writers. Earlier in her book, she aligns such study with the methodologies of new criticism, whereas study of the discourses of the periodicals she sees as closer to post-structuralism. The forging of a new material culture emphasis has been a hallmark of, the book, history, of book history, and Brake's work uh, takes it an important step further. However, the disadvantages of rejecting vertical studies, I think, are obvious. The baffling generality of her claims about the shared discursive formation of books and periodicals, their consanguinity of discourses, their sharing the same galaxy, uh, and the claim that periodicals can be treated as single texts to be studied, suggests to me that the banner that the banner of the material that the book history movement unfurled as its own 20 years or more ago has become something of a fetish, in need, I believe, of bibliographic counterbalancing. Otherwise, the claims reduce to the status of truisms, rhetorically impressive but perilously close to empty. The example of the part issue of Daniel Deronda can only be seen as significant in an un unspecific and unintended way, and then only for some contemporaneous readers who made what of it, rather than for the makers. This is worth knowing about, in, uh, this, this, this conjunction is worth knowing about in case it's indicative of something more important, but standing as an unexplained, apparently inexplicable event, how significant is it? 
Put another way, how in such a case can the production and reception of the doubtless ac accidental juxtaposition of the advertising and the George Eliot texts be grounded? How can production and reception be kept in connection so that a richness of interpretation can be forthcoming? Bibliographical reasoning, of course, often allows us to reconstruct production events, and in principle, this applies as much to canonical works such as Daniel Deronda as to the production of advertising wrappers. Bibliographical attuned attention to the actions of the textual agents and production methods puts us in a position to infer motivations and intentions that anticipated and sought to guide reader response of the time. A series of bibliographical analysis analyses of this and the subsequent production of events of Daniel Deronda over the decades, linked as far as possible to recorded acts of reception, might well reveal by cutting across the cultural rhythms and tensions of those successive historical moments. Well, I've shown this is possible with the Henry Lawson collection, why not with Daniel Deronda? Thus, I see no need to believe that materialist commitment to the horizontal kind of study that Brake advocates need involve undermining the vertical kind. Uh, to, uh, to assume that it must only exposes the erroneous assumption that understandings of what works and authorship are can never change, and that the role of the literary critic cannot broaden either. There is no need, I believe, for the literary scholar turned book historian to remain in reaction to the new critical triad of work, author, oeuvre although there is definitely a need to understand that triad afresh, as I've been trying to do with Lawson. Similarly, I see no need to downplay the cultural importance that the book form maintained for authors, reviewers and readers. But there is definitely, and as an editor I, I heartily agree with Brake, there is definitely a need to shine more light on the crucial role played by periodicals in the careers of authors, the kinds of writing this material form encouraged and the consequently Catholic experience of the periodical readerships. So finally, I am arguing that we can do this by modelling our understanding of works around their material forms, their chronologies of production, and in terms of the agents who originally produced them, and in their successive versions and publication forms. Then there is reception, and it's here, I think, that we have to locate the aesthetic. Readers realise works every time they are read. In that sense, they are necessarily, readers are necessarily textual agents. Mute objects in material form, texts live only by our grace as we read them. It gives us joy to extend their lives as they enter into ours, extending, expanding, challenging our imaginative life in the present. If this is the locus of the aesthetic, then the aesthetic is an event, a process, an experience carried out in relation to material objects. These objects are the things we can define bibliographically, locate and contextualise book historically and in other ways. When we discuss texts in a literary critical manner, especially while close reading, we say we are talking about the work or the book as if somehow both are equally objective. They are not because the aesthetic dimension is not. This does not derogate from its significance one iota, but it does change how we understand the literary. What I think we're actually talking about when we discuss a literary work is what we, is what we remember of that particular reading experience in relation to a material object. 
When we reach a point of disagreement, we characteristically check by returning to the object, which once again yields up its text to us. The acknowledgement of the act of reading as part of the life of the work potentially aligns, uh, allows a realignment of any and every work's hist historical and aesthetic legibility. For a start, reading is more closely allied with production that is commonly allowed, or that we are crossing a category boundary when we, uh, when we move from analysing production of printed matter, which bibliography allows us to do, to describing reception that new forms of, of book history help us to do. Typesetting is, before anything else, a form of reading and so is copy editing. Both are agented acts of interpretation or construing and both usually result in changed wordings, whether great or small. Publication is an act, uh, uh, is an act of reproduction carried out in the name of the work, done usually for commercial motives uh, in relation to real or supposed market opportunities. Reviewing is another act of reading that leaves a report of the encounter and marginalia in books in personal and public libraries all over the world bear cryptic memoranda of such encounters. All these acts are done in the present, one that soon falls into the past, all bring the work back into full being temporarily. When completed, they resign its status to a material one only, awaiting its next realisation. So, from this point of view, the work emerges not as a trans-historical essence, not as aesthetic object perfectly shaped for new critical study, but as a series of historical processes. For a literary classic, these processes leave material traces, a set, of, a set of printed products, all of which claim to present or represent the work. To accept this starting point is to be able to model the relationship between the material object and the readings carried out in the name of the work. And it is to redefine the fundamental unit of literary study. It's also to revalidate the study of the aesthetic quality of a work, both in the act of its realisation and through study of reports of similar encounters, similar readings from the past, differently situated though they were. In each case, the encounter is not only with a text, to which we have to add which text, but also, to a lesser extent normally, with the material features of the book or newspaper that embodies it. If reading involves human participation, then, texts, then text acts in a dialectic with document. The two dimensions require one another to establish their identity as such. The dialectic is not a transcendent one, as the humanist post-war literary critical style mandated. Rather, the dialectic is a process. The reading in the present is the only one that can absorb the context of the here and now, the only one, which in, and that context sh uh, shifts the nature of the work's realisation in the here and now. From this point of view, literary criticism becomes the practice and the study of readings. In certain conditions, appeals to the past, whence the work comes down to us, can be persuasive. Scholarly editions of the work usually make such an appeal. A product of the present, they do not supersede all previous editions and printings. Rather, scholarly editions propel the life of the work further into the future in an altered form by intervening in it critically and by appealing to criteria or information previously overlooked. So scholarly editors, like all editors, are agents in the ongoing life of the work, not its embalmers. Editions are one form of argument about the work. They are subject to the same textual and documentary condition of all printings carried out in the name of the work. My hope is that we will be able to find conceptual room for the aesthetic so that book history can revive and refresh literary study.
My contention is that this can be done if we look again at that manifestly relegated concept of the work. The folly, the folly of its continuing supersession is now clear to me. Discursive critique must and will continue, but we need to retrieve and rebuild the category of the work. The ongoing currency of any work must conceptually, I believe, be included in it. The work's capacity to go on doing imaginative work in people's lives offers a way of marrying the material and the aesthetic. The work is a convenient concept that offers boundary lines around the, around the constantly shifting relationship between the printed or other document and the aesthetic and other meanings raised from it by readers. In practical terms, what this work-centred approach to literary study offers is a way of bringing the history of works in their material and textual forms together with the receptions of those forms. The method I've been pursuing, simultaneously bibliographical and book historical, points to the larger question, should literary scholars be most interested in the writing or in the publication? Or both, or both, if they are separable moments in the life of the work. For most works, published in their hundreds every year as they are, we have either too little information or time to make that distinction. But with literary classics, published over many decades or centuries, we are now often able to undertake the deeper and more chronologically extended study. Thank you.